You're listening to audio from Queen City Church. Thank you for joining us. We hope this message will encourage you and offer practical steps for a relationship with God that keeps getting better and better. We are starting a brand new series today that I'm so excited about, and we're calling this series Sunday to Sunday, where we're gonna talk about the most important week of the most important person who's ever lived. And we're talking about the last week of Jesus. And it's actually commonly known as the Passion Week. And over the next seven weeks, leading all the way up to Easter Sunday, we're gonna study what Jesus did and what Jesus said in that Passion Week. And we're gonna take it day by day and how what he did and how what he said, it still impacts our lives today almost 2,000 years later. But I want you to not just know what we're doing. As always, I want you to know why we are doing this series. I want you to know that why we are carving out time, really seven weeks leading up to Easter to focus on this week. Here's why we're spending seven weeks focusing on Jesus's last week. And here's why. Because the Bible does. In fact, if you look at the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are known as the Gospels. These are the four eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you add up all the chapters in those four books of the Bible, if you add up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that there are 89 chapters in those four books. Now, the first 30 years of Jesus's life is actually four chapters, Out of those 89, only four are the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus only lived 33 years, so that means, let's do a little math, that the last three years of Jesus' life make up 85 of those chapters. But I want you to get this, get this. The last week of Jesus' life is 29 chapters. So nearly a third of the four Gospels, nearly a third of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is this last week from Sunday to Sunday. In fact, if you look at each gospel individually, the last week of Jesus's life is 30% of the book of Matthew, 40% of Mark, 24% of Luke, and 40% of John. Now here's what I want you to see, and here's why I communicate that all to you, because I want you to see right from the jump that this week is a very big deal in the Bible. And it's still a very big deal today. The truth is what happened in this week, like forever changed the course of human history. And what happened in this week and what we're gonna discover is still rippling through time all the way until today in 2024, all the way to Cincinnati, Ohio. This is a very important week. And I wanna make sure that right from the jump, you have a snapshot of this week of what actually happens from Sunday to Sunday. So the very first Sunday is what is known as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's actually what we're gonna talk about today. And then Monday, Jesus clears the temple. On Tuesday, Jesus teaches at the temple. And then on Wednesday, Most scholars believe that Jesus rested on this day because there's actually very little in the Bible about what happened on this day. And because Thursday is such a big day, because on Thursday, we see the Last Supper, Jesus praying in the garden, and then Jesus is betrayed and arrested on that Thursday. 
On Friday, of course, what we know today as Good Friday is the crucifixion. And then on Saturday is Jesus in the grave. And then the second Sunday is the resurrection. It's Easter. It's the greatest day in history. That's what happens from Sunday to Sunday. And today, if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, uh, they're going to check them in heaven. I'm just telling you. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the very first Sunday in the Passion Week. It's what's commonly known as Palm Sunday, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And specifically, we're gonna look at something and study something that happened on that day that's known today as the triumphal entry, which can be found in all four of the Gospels. And here's my goal today. My goal today is to teach the Bible. In fact, my goal today is to teach more than I preach. Uh, My goal today is to teach you what happened on that day, to teach you why it happened, and three, I'm going to end by giving you one practical application that I want to challenge you with today. Is that cool? Okay, let's pray. God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for your word. And God, right now, we just ask that you would speak to us. We open up our life to you. We open up our, our heart to you, our mind to you. And God, what I believe is that every person here is not here just by chance. I believe that you have every person here for a reason. And I think that you want to speak to each and every one of us. And so, God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us. Speak loud and clear in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Okay, Luke chapter 19. Let's read this Luke's account of the triumphal entry. Verse 29. It says, as he approached Bethpage and Bethany, which these are two very small villages that are in walking distance from Jerusalem, about one to two miles outside of the city. So as they approached those two cities at the hill called the Mount of Olives, and this is a very famous part of the Bible, and it overlooks the east side of Jerusalem. And in fact, here's a picture that I took with my iPhone in 2017, from the Mount of Olives. So, th- so this, is, this is where I was when I took this picture. You can see that it overlooks that east side of Jerusalem. And by the way, this is a very, very, very famous place in the Bible. Jesus would later ascend to heaven from here in Acts chapter 1. And the Bible says that this is the place where Jesus will eventually come back. And just for fun, and because I can, uh, this is also the next picture that was in my phone from that day. And this is a picture of Heather, and she is riding a camel on the Mount of Olives. So I took that picture, turned around, bam, my girl's on a camel. So I took that picture. (laughs) She looks so happy. I guess we're all happy when we're riding a camel, okay? Um, And so that happened on the Mount of Olives. And so on the Mount of Olives, here's what it says. It says that he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt. Now, when you see that word colt, I don't want you to think of like a horse. Um, I want you to think of a colt. This is a young male donkey that is less than four years of age, okay? So he says, hey, I want you to go into town, and you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. And let me just pause right there and just say, I think the Bible is fascinating. I think Jesus is fascinating. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me that it's fascinating that Jesus, that Jesus, he hadn't seen the cult, 
but he knew that it was there. And not only did he know that it was there, he knew that it was tied. And not only did he know that it was tied, he knew that it had never been ridden. And right here, I think Jesus is flexing his omniscient muscles. I think Jesus right here is showing us something that's very important. He's showing us that he's more than just a a, a good man or a good teacher or a good rabbi or a good preacher or a good leader. He's showing us that he's God. And listen, I I know that I'm supposed to be teaching this text. I kind of told myself, you're going to teach. You're not going to preach. You're going to teach this text, not preach this text. But if I was preaching this text, I would say something like this. Can I just tell you? That Jesus knows every single detail of humanity, including every single detail of your life, that nothing is hidden from him, that nothing catches him by surprise, that nothing catches him off guard, which means that you can put all your faith and all your trust in him. You know why? Because he's trustworthy. But I'm not. I'm not preaching. I'm teaching this text. But if I was, that's what I would say, okay? Here's what Jesus said, untie it, that, that, that colt, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. See, he's trustworthy. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And in John's account of this same story in John chapter 12, it says that people also waved palm branches as he went by, which was a traditional Jewish reception for royalty. And that's why this day is also known as Palm Sunday. It says in verse 37 that when he came near the place, where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully, loudly to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Other versions famously say right here this word, Hosanna. This word, Hosanna, which means God save us. And they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It says, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. So I want you to picture this scene. I want you to picture that Jesus, he's riding into town on a young donkey. And then suddenly, a big parade breaks out to celebrate him. And a big crowd gathers and rolls out this royal red carpet and loudly and joyfully starts worshiping King Jesus. That's the scene that we see right here. And then in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, it adds this detail. It says, when Jesus, when he entered Jerusalem, when this parade was happening, the whole city was stirred. And I want you to know today that that's what I've been praying all week for you. I've been praying that your heart today would be stirred by the presence of Jesus because I want you to understand that Jesus is here. 
that the presence of God is here. And I've been praying all week that today, as we encounter the presence and the power of God, that our hearts would be stirred, that today wouldn't be just business as usual, church as usual, that we wouldn't go through religious motions, that we wouldn't play the church game, but that all of us, myself included, would be stirred by the presence of King Jesus entering the room. But when I read this story, I don't know about you, but I can't help but think about a specific question. When I read this story and I read this account and I read the people's response to Jesus entering the city, I can't help but think about this question. How did things change so quickly? Like, how did everything turn? How did they go from praising Jesus loudly and enthusiastically and shouting Hosanna to yelling, crucify him five days later. How did they go from being this celebratory crowd into an angry mob in such a short amount of time? How did they have such fickle faith? And here's how, you ready? Because they had the wrong expectations of Jesus. Like they were expecting Jesus to be something that he wasn't. Because if you understand anything about what's happening here in this moment, their expectations on Jesus was that they expected him to be a military Messiah who would overthrow the Roman government who was in charge at the time and establish a new kingdom for the Jewish people. Let me say it this way. They wanted Jesus to fit into their image. They wanted their picture of Jesus to be what's true. They tried to fit Jesus into the mold that they had created for him. But what we got to understand is that he didn't come to just bring temporary military peace. He came to bring lasting, eternal peace with God. So here's my simple question to you thinking about this. My simple question to you is what are your expectations of Jesus? It's a very important question for us to take internal inventory today and to be able to ask, honestly, what are my expectations of Jesus? Like, are they the right expectations? Are they the wrong expectations? And this is such an important question, and here's why. You ready? Because your expectations of Jesus will affect your experience with Jesus. That principle right there is why everything changed in those five days. Because they expected something of Jesus that wasn't what was right. And then all of a sudden, that affected their experience. And then five days later, they're screaming, crucify him. It's really important that we ask ourselves, what is our expectations of Jesus? Because your expectations of Jesus will affect your experience with Jesus. So let me get practical. So if you expect Jesus to answer all of your prayers the way that you want them to be answered, if you expect Jesus to be your personal genie in a bottle that gives you what you want, when you want it, and how you want it, if you think that you're in control, if you think you're in charge, not him, if you expect Jesus to be a compartmentalized accessory to your life that you pick and choose when you need it and when you need him in your life, if you expect Jesus to be like a protective bubble that somehow shields you from the bad things of life, 
that somehow following Jesus makes you exempt from hard things and the storms of life, like death, sickness, pain, heartbreak, disappointment. If that's your expectations, then your experience and your relationship with Jesus will eventually be in trouble. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's a matter of time. If that is your expectations of Jesus, your experience with Jesus will be drastically affected. However, on the other hand, if you expect Jesus to save you from your sins, to pay your debt, and to make you right with God, something that you could never do on your own, if you expect Jesus to provide you with eternal life one day, and until you get to that moment, abundant life right now, that if you expect that, yes, I'm not exempt from the storms of life and hard things, however, I know that following Jesus is the best, most fulfilled life that I could ever found living here on planet Earth, if I expect that, if you expect that Jesus will be close to you and with you every single day, no matter what you go through, that if you expect him to be the one that's in control and in charge of your life, if you expect to be on a lifelong journey of following him and submitting to him and becoming more and more like him in every single area of your life until the day that you go to heaven, then I'm telling you, your experience and relationship with God will be better than you can even imagine. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, your expectations of Jesus will, will affect your experience with Jesus. So, with the rest of our time, here's the big question that I wanna answer. I wanna answer the question, why did Jesus do the triumphal entry? Like, why is this even part of the story? Why is this part of the Sunday to Sunday narrative? Like, why, why, why did Jesus do the triumphal entry? Because if you read through the Gospels, Jesus never did things like this. This was such an anomaly. Like before this, it's like he would always do the exact opposite. Up until this point, just read it, read through the gospels. Jesus had consistently told people to not tell others who he was, and he had deliberately avoided public celebration and attention. So when you see this, if you know the full narrative of the gospel, this seems almost out of character. So my question is, what changed? Why did Jesus not only allow this, but why did he intentionally orchestrate this? And let me just give you two reasons as I studied and I processed with God why I believe that Jesus did the triumphal entry. Here's number one, is to show you that he was who he said he was. That is one of the reasons why this takes place on the very first Sunday of the last week of his life, is to show you that he was who he said he was. One of the reasons why he did this was to fulfill the very famous prophecy that you can find in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which, by the way, mentioned this 400 years earlier. If you read through Matthew and John's account of this story, it actually verbatim shares this scripture in there. And here it is, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, which was written 400 years before this happened. It says, rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. 
He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And this was a very well-known, famous prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah that every single person would have known. So when Jesus did this, he was publicly declaring, I am the promised Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting 400 years for. I am the Savior, and I am the King that is coming in to change everything. He did this to show that he was who he said he was. Here's the second reason. The second reason was to show that he was fully in control. Let me show you one very interesting detail in Matthew's account of the triumphal entry. In Matthew chapter 26, verse three through five. Here's what it says. The Bible says, at that same time as this was happening, the leading priests and elders, so all the spiritual leaders, were, were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, and this is what they were doing, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Now, here's what this scripture shows us. This scripture shows that they were already planning on arresting and killing Jesus, but they weren't planning on doing that until after Passover. They weren't going to do it during Passover, which was this really big annual Jewish holiday where they remembered the historic night in Exodus chapter 12, which we don't have time to read. I encourage you to go back and check it out. But on this night, what happened is that as they were slaves in Egypt, every firstborn son in Egypt died. But God passed over every Jewish Israelite home that had the blood of a lamb on its doorframe, which led to the Israelites being set free from Egyptian slavery. So they were going to wait until after Passover but what the religious leaders witnessed and heard about at the triumphal entry moved up and expedited their timeline. In other words, it forced them to act. It forced them to put their plan into motion before. This led them to arrest and kill him, not after Passover, but on Passover, which they would celebrate on that Friday. And guys, I know this is like very Bible teacher, but I want you to understand how important this really was. And here's why. Because that allowed Jesus to become the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was prophesied to be sacrificed on Passover to save all of humanity, not just for one night back in Exodus chapter 12, but once and for all. It was a way that Jesus said, I'm in control. I'm controlling when this happens. You think you have your timeline? Well, let me step in and let me show you when my timeline is. That he did that. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, later, Christ is described as our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed for us. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, Look, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God because he is the true and greater Passover Lamb that takes away the sins of the world and saves us for humanity. So this celebration, like this parade, this royal red carpet, this triumphal entry was Jesus flexing And it was him selflessly moving up his execution date so that there could be no doubt that he was who he said he was. That he was the promised Messiah. That he was the perfect son of God. That he was our true king. And that he was the eternal, spotless lamb of God. See, he did what he did to show that everything was ultimately happening on his timeline not theirs, to show that he was sovereign and to show that he was ultimately the one that was in control. And here's why that is so important, because when you read through it, it can be so easy to to think that he wasn't in control, that all these things were happening to him. But Jesus in the triumphal entry at the very start of the most important week of the most important person who ever lived, he comes in and he says, guys, I want you to know that I am the one that is in control. That means what happens next, what happens in the next six days, what happens next when he's betrayed and arrested, that means when he is tortured. That means when, he puts on, when he's put on trial for a crime that he did not commit. That when he was shamed. That when he was mocked. That when he was humiliated. That when he carried a cross up a hill and he was nailed to that wooden cross. That what happens next, listen, it's because he chose it. Not because they wanted it. And my question is, Why? Why in the world would he choose that? Because I think if the tables were turned, that you and I would do whatever we could to delay that, to not experience that. So why in the world would Jesus say, I know you planned that for the next week, but let me move it up a week. Let me tell you why. Yes, it's to be able to to do, because it, it, it fulfilled all the prophecies about him being the perfect, spotless Passover lamb. But it's also because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it tells us that this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Make no mistake about it, his life was not taken from him. He laid down his life for us, for me, and for you. And you want to know why? What motivated? It's right there. It's love. That's why. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So I want you to know right from the jump that love is the motivating force behind everything from Sunday to Sunday, everything. But I wanna end with this because I want you to see what happens next, specifically in Luke's account. And this is why I picked Luke's because Luke adds a detail that's not in any of the other accounts. And this is how I wanna end. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 19 in verse 39, it says, after they had praised him so loudly and extravagantly, some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the crowd, said to Jesus, pulled him aside, get off your colt, come here, we gotta talk to you, and said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying like, Jesus, will you get them under control? 
Will you tell them to be quiet? Will you have them turn down the volume of their praise a little bit? Will you tell them to stop worshiping like that? And listen to Jesus' response in verse 40. He says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In, In the message paraphrase, that same verse, it says, if they keep quiet, the stones would do it for them, shouting praise. Jesus says, understand this, I'm so good and I'm so worthy of worship that if they don't praise me, the rocks will. Now, I hear that and something wells up on the inside of me and says, I don't know about you, but ain't no rock gonna take my place. Sorry, the Middle Tennessee comes out in me right there, but ain't no rock gonna take my place. That's bad English. That's good preaching, I'm telling you. Come on, where's my Alabama people at? You know. I'm telling you, that's still today, that he's still so worthy of our worship that if we choose to not extend our worship to him, the rocks will cry out in our place because he is worthy enough of that worship. And we need to understand that. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of worship. When you think of that word, what comes up? When I say that word, what comes up in your mind? Maybe you think of a chunk of time in a church service. Maybe you think of singing. Maybe you think of a genre of music on Spotify or Apple Music. Maybe for some of you, you think of Christian karaoke. It's just they put this this music and words come up. It kind of leads you a little bit so that you can sing along and it does that. Let me tell you my simplest definition of worship. It's this. Worship is love expressed. If you want to know what worship is, it is simply love expressed. In other words, think of it this way. Worship is PDA. Worship is public display of affection to whoever and whatever you love and value. And here's what I need you to get today is that we all worship something. Every single one of us. You may sit there and think, I'm not the worshiping type of person. I'm telling you, we all worship something. In other words, we are all worshipers. Every single one of us, we all worship something. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your personality. It doesn't matter your style. It doesn't matter where you are on your spiritual journey. And get this, it doesn't even matter if you've made the decision to follow Jesus or not. We all worship something. Let me put it this way. To be human is to be a worshiper. And I can prove it. Just go a few hours north to Columbus on a Saturday in the fall for an Ohio State football game. Or, OH? Okay, okay. Or, I can prove it by just going south a few hours to Lexington for a UK basketball game or my my Indiana people, or there, IU. Or just go stay in town and go to FC Cincinnati game and just sit in the Bailey. Or go to Paycor Stadium to a Bengals game. Or go to the next Taylor Swift concert next time she's in town. I'm telling you, if you go to any of those places, you will see worship. In fact, some of the most passionate, sincere worship I've seen is found nowhere near a church and has nothing to do with God. 
Because the truth is it's so easy for us to worship other things, to express our love other places, which in and of itself isn't bad. It's just when the order's messed up. Is that when those things come above God, it's so easy for us to worship things like relationships, marriage, our kids, possessions, money, jobs, promotion, approval, popularity, fame, status, followers. So easy for us to worship things like hobbies, sports teams, pop culture. And you wanna know why it's so easy for us to do it? Because that's how we're wired. We are wired, we are designed by God. We were created to worship. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that you can't choose if you worship. You can only choose what or who you worship. And that's so important for us to understand that. Is that you and I, we can't choose if we worship, but we can only choose what or who we worship. But the Bible is crystal clear that worship, that love expressed, the very top of our list, that it is exclusively reserved for God. That's why in Matthew chapter four, verse 10, Jesus says, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here's my practical question before we respond. Who or what is getting your worship? Can we take a moment before we go eat a little lunch and just take some spiritual inventory today and just ask who or what is getting your worship. Think about it. Who or what is getting the best of your love expressed? In my simple pastoral challenge today, as we start this series, as we look at Jesus' life in that last Sunday to Sunday, let's be intentional. I want us to be a church that is intentional to always give Jesus what he deserves. And that is our very best worship, to have him at the spot that he really deserves to be in in our life. And if you are seeing that question and God is speaking to you, I had somebody come up to me in between services and just said, I really felt God speak to me that I was putting my job in that first spot. That I was, that that was getting my worship. And if you're here and the Holy Spirit is revealing something to you, it's not to condemn you. It's not to bring shame. It's to bring conviction, which leads to healthy change. And if you're here and you believe God is showing you something, maybe an area of your life that's out of order, can I just encourage you to do what the Bible calls repent? And that word repent, it, it can have such a bad PR attached to it. But I just wanna tell you it's a beautiful word because here's what it means, change your mind. I changed my mind. This was first on my list, it got my best worship and I changed my mind first. That that's not what deserves it, God, you deserve it. And then that change of mind leads to a change in your direction. 
then it leads you to put him first in your life and to give him your very best love expressed. So if you're here, I just encourage you to take time today, maybe even during this response time, to just repent. And by the way, let me make this crystal clear. I'm not talking about singing loud and lifting your hands in church. Yes, that's part of it. But God did not send his one and only son to die on a cross, pay for our sins, cancel our debt and defeat death just so we could worship Jesus on Sundays at a church service. No, my challenge to you is to let not just what we do in here, but let your entire lives be worshiped to Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse one. It's my favorite verse on worship and it has nothing to do with singing. It says, therefore I urge you, my brothers and sisters, and I am urging you today in view of God's mercy, in view of what he has done through Jesus, in response to offer your bodies, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Listen to me, church. Worship is not just about what we do in here. It's also about what we do out there. So may all of us this week be worshipers. May we all give Jesus what he deserves in here and out of here, our very, very best. If there's anything in your life that we can pray for, please visit queencitypeople.com slash prayer. For the latest updates on our church, follow us on social media at Queen City People or visit queencitypeople.com.